Hey there, welcome back to a new episode of People Are Wild, the medical podcast that keeps going and going like an energizer bunny. I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse of a host with a bit of a stuffed up nose this week, but I'm feeling good and you're feeling good and I'm excited to be back with you for another week. Now, some follow-up announcements and or observations. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. Special thanks again to Melissa from the Moms and Murder podcast for putting up with my would-you-rather questions after sharing her incredible journey that she took us all on towards her endometriosis diagnosis and living with endometriosis. Melissa, you're the real MVP. I have observed some interesting things in my time here in Texas on my current travel nurse assignment. I have had to recently relocate due to a myriad of reasons that I may or may not share in the future. Needless to say, it's probably a bad sign when you tell your coworkers where you are living and they immediately launch an effort to get you to a new accommodation after they have been laughing for about five minutes. Also, they make sure to contact the police department to increase patrol at night towards where you are currently living in an effort to make sure that you show up to work alive. Y'all, it has been an experience down here. I will say this, though. Texans are very, very kind and compassionate people, and I am fortunate to be where I currently am, so I have relocated to a much safer residence for my time being down here, and I would like to issue a shout out to my coworkers and my new Texas family that is looking out for this one right here. Also, just as a PSA, be super cautious about renting rooms from Craigslist. Maybe that isn't a PSA to most of you, maybe that's actually common sense, but for me, this was the first time while on a travel assignment that Craigslist has actually steered me wrong. So, me and Craigery, Craigerith, and his list are not talking right now. But you didn't start listening to this podcast to hear me talk about almost becoming a Craigslist murder victim. You are here for medical entertainment. Medutainment, that's what I promise. And that means it's time to get into today's episode. So let's do that, shall we? Now I have lit my Golden Girls prayer candles. Yes, they exist. Yes, they are spectacular. And yes, there are four of them. I have listened to Foreigners Cold as Ice on a loop repeat for an hour, and I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Who even likes Christmas music during the holiday season? Jean Hilliard thought to herself as she was navigating her vehicle down the road. The 19-year-old was driving back to her parents' house on that night of December 20th. She changed the station from the seemingly incessant festive music that had been playing and landed on the local rock station. The radio DJ had just started playing Pat Benatar's new song, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Jean might have been more partial to Queen's newest hit on the radio, Another One Bites the Dust, but Pat's tune will do, since anything would be better than stupid holiday music. Jean was on her way from a friend's house that night. The teenager loved catching up with her friends and family, especially during the holiday season. Now, personally, I totally understand where Jean's coming from. I despise Christmas music during the holiday season myself. You know, it's constantly playing everywhere. In the mall, on the radio, in the bathroom at the club. You know what? We should just play it overhead in the hospital. Maybe that would soothe patients into a more holiday and festive spirit instead of always trying to fight us. Now, Christmas music to me sounds better when it's played outside of the holiday season. I have All I Want for Christmas on my workout playlist, and it's a delight when I'm doing my thing, and Mariah Carey's vocals grace me with her presence, and it's the middle of March. It gives me this weird motivation that I need to power through the rest of my workout. I recommend you try it sometime and report back to me with your results. Now, back to Jean. She's driving home from a friend's house on her way back to her parents' house. The time wasn't too late, maybe around 8 p.m., but the weather outside, it was frightful. And there was no fire that was so delightful in sight. It was straight up cold outside in Langby, Minnesota on December 20th, 1980. It was 
22 below zero Fahrenheit, which translates in Celsius to about negative 30 degrees outside. Yes, I am going to try and account for all those listeners outside of the Fahrenheit nation that is America. I don't know why we don't get on board with SI units. Now, on top of that, it was windy AF outside. Y'all, if you had your hair done for that holiday party that night, Hopefully you had some great hairspray hold on there. You got some good Aquanet. I don't know, whatever was big in 1980. And you put a bonnet over that hairdo because without that, it would look windswept, but not in a fun, flirty kind of way to entice that man underneath the mistletoe. Speaking of mistletoe, what the hell is mistletoe? Why is that even a thing? Do you just make out with somebody under a plant? Well, really, it's a weed that just dictates it and we just honor it? I don't get it. I don't understand Calm down, Kim. Just calm down. You're digressing. You're digressing. Okay, Gina's driving while the weather outside is dreadful. Just that level of cold where you're not sure if, you know, your job is actually worth it to even go outside and walk to your vehicle to even warm it up. It's that kind of hella cold outside. And Jean, she knows this route back home like the back of her hand. If she was in LA, she would pull a Natalie Nunn because Jean runs Langby, Minnesota, just like Natalie Nunn runs LA. One thing Jean did not run or control was that horribly frigid, windy weather outside. Yes, indeed, the Iceman cometh, and it's nut Chuck Liddell. And so, as Jean was rounding a bend, the once reliable family vehicle decided to head for a breakdown in the form of heading towards a ditch. You guys have to understand something. I'm going to take a step back. I was born and raised in the desert southwest of the United States for a majority of my life. I did not even see snow until I was a teenager, late teens. I didn't know how to drive in snow until I was in my early 20s when I had to move to Colorado for work. And let me tell you something. I work in the ER. I see things no other person ever should. I have my adrenaline going most of my shift most days. But the thing that terrifies me most is when there's snow falling outside and I know that I have to go home driving in it and none of the roads are going to be plowed. That is my danger zone. Now I will commend Colorado because they had a good handle on keeping the roads cleared and plowed and salted and whatever else you need to do to make sure I don't have a damn anxiety attack trying not to crash my Kia Forte that I call Hercules for a reason. I wish this was upheld throughout the rest of the country because this is another further digression, but one night I came home from work and I was actually working during a nor'easter, which I think is still a made-up work, and I was working in Maryland at the time, and so the area I was working in actually lacked snow plows, and this was during essentially a blizzard. This was my very first blizzard that was not courtesy of a Dairy Queen, which again, as another quick side note, I've never actually experienced their blizzard either. I've never actually set foot in a Dairy Queen, although I'm sure that unique dairy experience from a Dairy Queen would be much more pleasant than getting off of work at 4 a.m. only to find out that none of the roads during a blizzard outside the hospital had been plowed because the city did not have enough plows. Now, needless to say, the kindness of the Eastern Shore residents of Maryland was in full effect that night slash morning, and they helped me actually dig my car out at one point because I had spun off into a ditch, and I think I cried for about 30 minutes, and I might have hyperventilated a little. I don't know. It was a whole thing, but I'm here in front of a microphone to tell you that I survived. But I know how to drive in snow to an extent, and that's the point of this stupid tangent. It's still the most panic-inducing moments of my life, but I know if I'm going slow and low and pump my brakes and I drive with a brain in my skull, I'll get there alive. Now, how is it that people can drive in active snowfall with wind and icing conditions and they're going upwards of 60 miles an hour? I don't get it. We're living in a society here, people. Do you want to be a part of it or do you want to be causing anarchy and chaos? You need to decide, but not around me because I'm going to just be freaking out in my little Kia. I don't know what was going through Jean's mind on that snowy, blistery evening of December 20th. It was more than likely that she just needed to get herself home safely. Honestly, during snowstorms, that's all you want to do is get home and not have to drive anymore. Jean's vehicle did good to get her from point A to point B until that night when, due to weather, her car spun out. Old Reliable had skid off the road on the edge of the White Earth Indian Reservation, installed in the windy, frigid weather. No doubt, Jean had some expletives going through her mind as she desperately tried to get the car to turn over. Rubbing her hands and blowing into them to keep things warm, 
She cranked that key in the ignition, maybe even wishing it was hot and fresh out the kitchen. The car would not start up again, and Jean was stuck. Or was she? Taking stock of where she was, she realized that she had a friend who lived nearby, sort of. Wally Nelson lived a couple miles down the road, and if she stayed in the car that night, she'd freeze to death. The car had been heavily damaged, and again, wouldn't even turn over for her. The odds were slim to none that anyone else was going to be driving down the road that night, especially during weather like this. This was the 1980s, literally 1980, and smartphones were just a glimmer in Steve Jobs' little eyes. And there was no OnStar for George Clooney's Batman to call. You remember that Batman movie? When Batman's suit had like the nipples in the details of his body armor? Or didn't he have like a Bat Visa? Like it was Batman Visa? Which actually did address that question of how did Batman pay for things? I guess he does have a Bat Visa in his little utility belt. I just always thought that that Batman was actually one of my favorites because I see it as an homage to Adam West Batman and we all know where I lie on my scale of which Batman is best. It is always going to be Mr. Adam West. May he rest in peace. Now, Jean is stranded at this point wishing that Batman, Superman, or any superhero, or hell, even a supervillain, would be able to take her away safely from her current situation in a car that doesn't work, that has no heat, and is not going to get her home. But if she could just get to Wally's house, she would just wait it out until morning and be able to call her parents that night and let them know that she's safe, plans have changed, but she's okay. And everybody knows that you always have to have a plan B because plan A is more than likely guaranteed to fail. So time to initiate plan B, Jean thought as she let out a breath and maybe more expletives before she headed out. Now she was clad in Western boots, a coat and mittens. Again, negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 30 degrees Celsius with wind chill factor in full effect outside in Minnesota at night. She trekked on down the road and began walking to Wally Nelson's house two miles away. Two miles might seem like nothing for some of us. It's a little over three kilometers after all. And Jean could easily do that, right? She was 19 years old, healthy adult, no biggie. She decided to fight the heavy winds and freezing temperatures. Jean walked through this extreme weather as she set out to reach her friend Wally Nelson's house the start time of her excursion being right around 8 p.m. Now she trudged through horrible weather, blustery snow, wind chill factor out the wazoo. The distance wasn't going to be too long for her. That's what she kept telling herself. But she was walking against the wind in this horrible weather, and that made her legs and her whole body tired and weak. And after walking and completing this trek, she finally arrived and reached her friend's driveway. She was exhausted. She had barely any energy left in her body. It took her nearly four hours to traverse two miles, three kilometers, and get to his driveway. Later on, Jean would say, quote, I was so relieved to see my friend's house as I knew that everything was going to be fine. I was almost there. And that's all I remember. It was all she could remember because with just 15 feet shy of her friend's front door, everything caught up to Jean. Her body was drained. She had pushed herself to an extreme. It was about 1 a.m., hours after she had set out trudging those couple miles, those few kilometers to his house. Her body, it was done. Jean was so dehydrated and tired that her body collapsed on the driveway and was incapable of moving. Now, since it was 1 a.m., there was no chance that anyone would even be on the road, much less outside, to help her out, or hear her, or see her. And there she lay, for six hours, chilling, literally, chilled to perfection. No, really, she was slowly turning into a human icicle. Wally woke up and exited his home at about 7 a.m. the next morning, he thought he saw something laying in this driveway. Maybe it was an animal that got caught out in the snowstorm last night. The farthest thing from his mind about what it could be was a human body, much less the body of a human he knew. And as he neared the object, he noticed that it was a person. And his walking turned into a jog sprint of some sort as he rapidly made his way over to this body. Now imagine his surprise and shock and horror 
when he turned this body over from its side and discovered that it wasn't just a person, but it was his friend, Gene Hilliard. He frantically checked for any signs of life, but Gene was frozen solid. He was freaking out in every sense of the words and had no choice but to carry her frozen body and load her into his vehicle. She was solid, a human popsicle. So the best thing he could do in the most gentle manner possible was place her in his vehicle diagonally. There was no way that she could actually rest in a comfortable position. Her face haunted him. She was a ghost. Her eyelids were frozen open and her eyes were solid, fixated, no movement, no tracking. Her face was ashen, haunted, and frozen. There was no question that she was indeed sent to the cooler in more ways than one. Wally drove to the nearest hospital. It was a last-ditch effort to save his friend. Now, I had to take a step back as I read this story, because this is a true story. Wally was remarkably composed in this situation. If you think about it, if you found one of your friends in the morning as you're walking out the door, your friend is frozen in the snow on your driveway just short of your front door after a horribly frigid night with a horrible snowstorm. Would you have the sense of mind to not only check for signs of life, but then upon realizing that you couldn't find anything, carefully pick them up, carry them to your vehicle, load them in as safely as possible before driving to the nearest hospital. You hope that you would do that for your friend. And remember, this is 1980. There's no cell phones. There's no Siri. There's no Alexa to ask how to thaw out your frozen friend or to ask if it's raining outside. Why did Zoe Deschanel just look out her stupid window in that commercial? Anyways, Kudos goes out to Wally because I think that 1980 Kim would not be that logical with a frozen human icicle of my friend laying in my driveway, possibly dead. So that brings up another question that is totally off center off this topic, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What would be the best way to get rid of a dead body? I always thought a pig farm, right? Because pigs eat everything, including bones. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But Wally is the guy that ends up essentially saving Gene's life. And he drives Gene, who is apparently channeling outcast Hey Ya a little bit ahead of time, as she is cooler than being cool. Yes, Gene was indeed ice cold. And Wally rolled her and himself into the Faustin Municipal Hospital at about 8 a.m. So if you think about it, we are now about 12 hours-ish from when she initially crashed to when she is now in the hospital and being assessed. And you're also about seven hours post her passing out and starting essentially with being frozen and being exposed to the cold. Now, I imagine for the ER staff, the sight of a human icicle that would make even Mr. Freeze jealous was a bit jarring. One of the physicians who cared for Jean, Dr. George Sather, would describe his newest, chilliest patient as the following, quote, the body was cold, completely solid, just like a piece of meat out of a deep freeze, end quote. You know, I could only hope that one day my future husband will describe me in the same manner after we have a disagreement, and he knows I'm right, but is too stubborn to admit that I am correct. I hope I will be described as cold, just like a piece of meat out of a deep freeze. Now, Jean's pupils were non-responsive, and her skin was so cold and so hard that a needle could not penetrate anywhere on her in order to do any blood work, much less give her any warm fluids to help her body with thawing out. Her initial body temperature was unreadable by hospital thermometers that they had in the department and more than likely in the whole entire hospital. Their thermometers are only able to read as low as 88 degrees Fahrenheit, which translates to about 31 degrees Celsius. Now, normal body temperature is about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, give or take one or two degrees plus or minus. If those thermometers were not even able to read her temp, this means that Jean was at least 10 degrees lower than normal. Now, I would caution Paul Abdul with calling Jean a cold-hearted snake because it seems as though Jean was probably a very nice person, but I would agree with Miss Paula that she was definitely cold-hearted, 
but maybe only in a physical sense at that moment. But why did the emergency room staff even try with bringing Jane back? There were no signs of life, according to Wally's assessment, but by the time she arrived, hospital staff was able to feel a pulse on her wrist. It was faint, but it was there, and it registered about 8 to 12 beats per minute. Now, a normal heart rate in a healthy adult is between 60 to 100 beats per minute. Jean was 8 to 12 beats per minute. She was one-fifth of a normal heart rate. And her pupils were not reactive to light, which is not a good sign when it comes to assessing a person's neurological status. Non-reactive pupils or blown pupils can be an indication of brain damage. So needless to say, things weren't quite looking good for Jean's dire state. Now, there is a saying, though, in the ER and in the emergency medicine, as well as wilderness medicine, and that is this, you are not dead until you're warm and dead. You know, I've noticed that there's a lot of phrases in the ER and in the realm of emergency response that I'm slowly sharing with you guys. Every time I do one, I'm realizing that you guys are getting a glimpse of just how weird and maybe morbid we are. Warm and dead, CPR is like sex, and there's more and more to come down the pipeline, but I swear to you, it gives you this kind of like reassurance and it makes things a little bit more lighthearted when you're faced with all of these critical and sometimes devastating things that happen to a human body and to a family. So please do not think that we are that callous or indifferent towards bad situations, but it helps us to get through these situations and do what's best for people. So everyone knew that they needed to get Jean warm. She had a pulse, she was breathing, but she was unconscious. So they needed to thaw her out like she's the chicken your mom told you to put out in the sink before you left for school that day. That wasn't just me, right? That wasn't just me that would get that sticky note on their bathroom in the mirror that said like, Kim, take out the chicken from the freezer before you leave for school. And so help you if I didn't do that, I would rather have the wrath of Khan than the wrath of my mom in my life uh, that night. Dr. George Sather and his intrepid staff decided to slowly rewarm Jean. And you have to go low and slow with rewarming in order to have a chance of preserving tissues, organs, and hopefully minimizing any brain damage. When Jean initially presented at 8 a.m., her joints were frozen, and doctors had no way of moving her arms or legs. They described it as a stiff log covered with ice. And in the words of the great Alyssa Edwards, it was more than likely rigamorous, y'all, rigamorous. The best that the staff could do with a patient that was unconscious but breathing and had a heartbeat was continuing to thaw her out. They ended up bundling her up with warm blankets. And about three hours later, with her mother by her side, Jean asked for some water. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, Jean Hilliard regained consciousness. And here's the neat part. She was perfectly fine, mentally and physically, although a bit confused. By the end of that first day, she was able to move her arms. Doctors had argued with her parents that they may have to amputate her legs to save her life due to the cold exposure, but Jean continued to show signs of recovery. The doctors were amazed. Three days later, she was capable of moving her legs. No amputations were going to be required for Jean Hilliard. One of the doctors described it as a miracle in medical history. And their doctors, they were concerned and kept her in the ICU for six days to monitor her. 49 days later, Jean left the hospital without losing a single nail. Doctors still can't explain what happened to her or how she survived being completely frozen. Now, Jean later would say in an interview, quote, At worst, I might lose a couple of toes, but she lost nothing. If anything, she had some frostbitten spots that needed some skin grafts, but she was able to make a full recovery. No brain damage. And some would say she was a walking, talking miracle. They looked into this case a little bit more. And some chalk it up to the fact that alcohol was found in her system. And that might have made it so that her organs were not frozen. And this led to the prevention of permanent damage when she was rewarmed. Now, if you ask other physicians, they say such miracles are not all that rare. Freezing victims have recovered fully even after prolonged periods without heartbeats. Now, although Jean is undeniably lucky to survive, there are numerous case reports in medical literature of people who have survived with core internal body temperatures as low as 68 to 69 degrees. 
Now, you might have read stories of kiddos who fell into a frozen lake via some thin ice that gave way. And it takes a while to get the kid out safely, and things look really grim. But really, their body goes into this state of preservation, suspended animation, maybe even arrested development, complete with a stair car. No, actually, it's not that last bit. But what it is, is the body's natural self-preservation kicking in, in a cold, extreme exposure. Now, the human body reacts to extreme cold much like a hibernating animal. Internal activity is slowed, which dramatically reduces the cell's demand for oxygen from the blood. In that slow motion state, even sensitive brain cells can survive after the heart has stopped pumping. Hypothermia can give the brain and body added protection when it is in this suspended animation slow motion state. But this seems to be only apparent when the core body temperature drops below 89 degrees Fahrenheit in a person's body. So if you channel your inner hibernating bear, you and your body might survive like Jean Hilliard did. But only if it's really, really cold out. On the ER spectrum of things, I have seen patients who come in with low core body and internal temperatures that we can actually register now due to new devices being made since the 1980s. And the lowest I can remember offhand that I've ever seen registered on our core body temps was someone who came in and was about 80 degrees Fahrenheit for their internal core body temperature, which translates to about 26 degrees Celsius. And actually, That was my first patient of my first day ever in any ER. So this is going back to when Kim was a brand new baby ER nurse, and this patient was brought in after having been found by a family member that morning. And the previous night, there had been a cold snap. So the area that we were at was not usually as cold as it had gotten down to in the past couple nights, and the night before had been one of the coldest temperatures in the history of the region. What had happened was that this patient was outside their gate, outside of their house, and they found themselves accidentally locked outside of their home. Now, they tried to scale their fence to get back into their home, but they ended up falling and being knocked out, and they laid there for close to 12 hours exposed in these freezing temperatures. This patient had a lot of other health problems and comorbidities going on. So when the patient's family member found them the next day, that person was completely unresponsive. And medics arrived on scene, they had to initiate CPR, and I should also mention This region, it was cold outside, but it wasn't snowy, icy, or really windy, so the patient wasn't frozen solid like Jean had been, but they had this core body temperature that was in the 80s. So we had to continue doing CPR, and the code, while this patient was slowly being rewarmed, the patient was so cold that we could only get their core body temperature up to about 89 degrees with our rewarming efforts in the hospital. And this was after this code had lasted for close to two hours because you're not dead until you're warm and dead. But if you can only get their temperature up to a certain level, then the doctor has to make sure that, you know, we have exhausted every resource. If we can only do this and we have, you know, addressed every concern across the board, there's a whole difference. Okay, so there's this whole spectrum of potential issues that can cause a code that you address while you're doing a code and you see how the patient reacts and you see how the body reacts. And when you've exhausted every single thing that you could think of and you're still at this level, the doctor is then forced to kind of go around the room and say, does anybody else have anything else that they think what could happen or that we could try in order to help with this patient? And if we've exhausted everything, they will call time of death. And that's what happened in this case. So it was a big moment for me to see that mantra of you're not dead till you're warm and dead, which I had been taught in my wilderness medicine training to see this in full effect in a hospital setting. And it was a big moment in my life in general, because again, this is my first patient of my first day in my first ER. I'm a baby nurse. I have this coding hypothermic patient that we're not able to revive. And so my preceptor, my mentor, whatever you want to call them, told me to take a 15 minute break and we could talk about it, but I was right there. I was back into it. This was my thing. It was a total sink or swim moment and I haven't essentially looked back since then. So in a way, it was the perfect way to start off my ER life. But this whole topic brought up some things that I have been taught and that I was trained with in regards to wilderness medicine regarding cold exposure care. So I'm going to touch on that aspect of things because 
it's not often that I can have a chance to bridge and bring together my hospital training with my medicine, uh, my wilderness medicine training. And I want to take the time to maybe sort of bring that to light because it is something that can save your life or save the life of people that you do outdoor things with. So when I was being taught wilderness medicine, we touch on a lot of topics and you are in this course for about a week to two weeks, depending on what you're doing. And part of the course that you do involves this ultimate practical, this ultimate scenario land. It's different from any sort of hospital teaching because they actually stick you in the wilderness for a whole night with a group of your classmates and you do simulations of medical situations and medical problems. So for my practical, it was actually during the winter and we were in the snow and we had a few different scenarios to contend with during our night trip, our night practical. But on top of these pre-planned scenarios, all of us are dealing with being out in the elements, being out in the cold. It was windy, it was icy, it was snowy. So hypothermia was actually on our minds just in general for ourselves and for our group. Now, luckily, we didn't have anyone who was ill-prepared for the elements, like maybe Jean had been, but we all had to keep in mind that hypothermia was very real. Now, you have to remember, Jean wore barely any layers and had no preparation, at least via her clothing, and that is one of the first steps in hypothermia prevention, is just being aware of the environment you're going into and dressing appropriately for it. But let's say you're caught out in the elements and you're stuck out there and Bear Grylls is nowhere in sight to drink his own urine for some reason. You've got on appropriate layers upon layers, but you're stuck and it's cold. Now, good thing you have a friend who is a wilderness first responder who is part of your hiking excursion that has now gone wrong. And she is currently trying to figure out your shelter situation for the night, as well as your gear situation in order to keep the both of you alive. Now you're kind of just blowing into your hands, shivering, trying to keep yourself warm. You might feel things coming in the air tonight. Oh Lord. But it's not going to be hypothermia. Not on your friend's watch. So hypothermia advances into three stages. Mild, moderate, and severe. It's, uh, hmm. It's just like the hot sauces at Buffalo Wild Wings. Except there's no blazing stage that will blow out your colon. Now if you have ever been locked in a meat freezer or fallen into a cold lake and had to wait for rescue, or you've just been outside on a cold day without the proper coverage, you've probably encountered the mild stage of hypothermia. Now in this stage, there is an impaired ability to perform complex tasks, fine motor shivering, apathy, confusion and sluggish thinking, slurred speech, stumbling, and something we lovingly call the umbles, which is not a new fun boy band reminiscent of O-Town and their liquid dreams. No, these would be your umbles. Stumbles, which is the loss of control over movement, slowed motion, stiffness in extremities. The mumbles, slurred, slowed, or incoherent speech, sleepiness, or confusion. The fumbles, slow reaction time, dropping objects, and poor coordination. And the grumbles, which is change in behavior expressed in a negative attitude. Depending on where you work and who you work with, you could say that maybe they have the umbles, maybe they're hypothermic, but really they're just probably having a bad day and have a case of the Mondays. But let's talk about how this can go bad. If you move from the mild stage of hypothermia into the moderate stage of hypothermia, it's everything that the mild stage has, but it's intensifying. Chief among those would be uncontrollable, violent shivering and worsening of those umbles. That is a key characteristic of crossing over from a mild to moderate stage of hypothermia. Now, a person will remain awake and alert at this stage and touching on what's going on in your actual body at this level. See, the surface blood vessels, which are those magical veins and arteries, they contract further as the body focuses its remaining resources on keeping the vital organs alive. So basically, it's kind of shunting away from your extremities to keep your core organs alive. And it's literally the organs that are housed in your core, core part of your body. Now, lips, ears, fingers, and toes may start to become blue. And because of this contracting of these vessels, a person might start to become a little bit more pale and lose their color and their pallor. Now, let's say you're still out there and the hypothermia is starting to get really bad. When it reaches that severe stage, that third stage, 
Shivering occurs in waves. It'll get violent and then pause. And these pauses get longer until the shivering actually finally ceases altogether. And this is because the heat output from burning glycogen in the muscles is not sufficient to counteract the continuing dropping core temperature. The body shuts down on shivering to conserve glucose. So let's translate that a little bit better. Your body needs glucose. Glucose is sugar. And I love working in different regions in this country because diabetes in the South is referred to as the sugars or like the sugar disease or the sugar beeties. And there are always these little amazing older patients who tell me that their sugars are out of control and it kind of melts my little heart of stone a little bit. So let's keep that in mind and just know that your body needs sugar. And that means that it needs glucose for fuel in order to keep your body going, especially in your brain. Now in hypothermia, it can only tap into those glucose reserves for so long before it exhausts itself and shivering no longer helps to keep the body warm, but instead depletes that fuel. And so the body decides to stop shivering in an attempt to halt any more tapping into those sugar, those fuel, those glucose reserves. As a result of that, muscular rigidity and decreasing mental status that progresses to unresponsiveness can start to develop. Now, a decreased pulse that may slow down to being almost non-palpable, which means you can't feel it, and breathing rates that may slow down or become so shallow as to be imperceptible, as well as lethal heart rhythms do become present in severe hypothermia. This is when things can get bad. This is when people die. Now, you might have heard a little bit about this phenomenon that happens as people become more and more hypothermic. Now, 20 to 50% of hypothermia deaths are associated with paradoxical undressing. This typically occurs during moderate and severe hypothermia, so stages two and three, as the person becomes disoriented, confused, and sometimes combat, and they may begin discarding their clothing, which in turn will increase the rate of heat loss. If you think about it, you take off your clothes while it's cold out, your heat's just going to go. It's going to go through your head. It's going to go through everywhere. There's nothing in there to keep it insulated because you've shed all of your clothes. With wilderness medicine, you are taught to expect to see clothing strewn about. Sort of like it was in a montage out of an 80s, no, maybe more of a 90s movie. And it's like set to the song I'm walking on sunshine while there's clothing flying everywhere as the main character gets ready for their first day of school. Like that sort of thing, you know, clothing just strewn about. However, People who die from hypothermia in a more urban and non-wilderness environment are sometimes incorrectly assumed to have been subjected to some sort of sexual assault. So it's interesting just in literature to keep that sort of in mind that this does happen in, again, a a majority, 20 to to 50% of people who go to these advanced stages of hypothermia, this can happen. So people who die from hypothermia and start to undress, you go, well, why does that happen? And one explanation is that there's a cold-induced malfunction of the hypothalamus, and that's the part of the brain that regulates the body temperature. Now, that can be a whole different thing that you can listen to another podcast about, but that's not what I'm going to go into. We're just going to say it could be that. Another explanation is that the muscles that contract the peripheral blood vessels, which again are the magical veins and arteries, that in this case are not in the chest and abdomen, These are the ones that are in the extremities. So these are in the arms, the hands, the legs, and feet. These blood vessels, they become exhausted. And this is also known as a loss of vasomotor tone. So use that phrase in your dinner conversation tonight. So as they relax, they lead to a sudden surge of blood and therefore heat to these extremities. And this causes that person to start to feel overheated. And much like Nellie, when it's getting hot in here, so hot, you have to take off all your clothes. But this time, it's in the middle of a blizzard and not in the middle of a club. So Jean never made it to this stage in her tale of survival because she collapsed due to dehydration and physical exhaustion. Her body became subjected to the elements all while she was unconscious. So she never consciously went through the stages of hypothermia and thus never actually reached any stage of severe hypothermia 
in her awake and alert state. Now, she did become a victim of hypothermia, though, because her core body temperature kept dropping. But because she was unconscious, she didn't necessarily have a decline in her mental status, brain, or muscle function, but she became a victim of cold exposure. Now, while Jean only required some skin grafts and had escaped amputations, she still was at risk at that moment for frostbite and severe, severe frostbite. So, if you've seen that movie that came out a couple years ago, Everest, that starred the crush of my younger years, Donnie Darko himself, Jake Gyllenhaal, amongst a stellar cast, it does touch on this real events that happened in the 90s during one of the more brutal Everest summit windows. And it's actually very tragic. Just given my background and what I do, I have encountered a few people in my life who do crazy mountaineering. I know a few people who have trekked Everest. And in the 90s, there was a very, you can, I mean, Everest, obviously the movie profiled it, but there, there was this climbing excursion group that went up Everest and they ended up having a lot of lives lost during this particular window of season. And Everest is a touchy subject for a lot of people, especially uh, within the wilderness community, within the mountaineering community, within the climbing and trekking community. It's become a bit of a hot button issue that I don't have the best knowledge about and I really shouldn't say anything about because of that. But I would encourage you to do some research as to why Everest is such a hot button issue in terms of some of the less than savory sides of mountaineering. But for our purposes, we're going to talk about frostbite and exposure. So with what happened in this movie, it does a really good job, but it does glamorize it with the Hollywood filter about telling the story of what happened during that, I believe it was 19, maybe 1994, 1996. But it talks about this group of climbers and one of the climbers who was from Texas, I believe, was left in the horrific weather and suffered major cold exposure and he ended up surviving but he had amputations to his nose and his fingers because of frostbite and it's a fantastic movie i highly recommend it jakey boy is a total zen mountaineer guru of a man and it's just for that alone you should just go see it but it helps me to kind of segue into frostbite because this is what can happen after a major cold exposure, and this is when you become concerned about amputation. So, frostbite is not the name of the dog Mr. Freeze had, or possibly Frozone would have if they had like a secret lair. Frostbite is defined as a local freezing cold injury. It is most likely to occur on fingers, toes, ears, and nose, body parts that are notoriously not fully covered in cold elements and cold extremes. It creates a spectrum of injury ranging from minor irritation to extensive tissue loss or even amputation. So according to the Wilderness Medicine Institute of Knowles, there are three types of frostbite, superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness, which is kind of like burns are classified, which makes sense if you think about how both burns and frostbite involve tissue damage due to temperature extremes in some way. So with superficial frostbite, there's no permanent damage to the tissue. There's mild tingling and numbness present. The skin is white and waxy and becomes warm, swollen, painful, and tender after being thawed. Thawing out superficial frostbite needs to begin as soon as possible. And this is when you can get a pass for some skin-to-skin contact because skin-to-skin warming is acceptable at this stage of frostbite. So find your favorite warm friend or warm crush and let their body heat melt your little frostbitten fingers. Wouldn't that be the ultimate meet cute story? Or a misconnection on Craigslist? Like, me, frostbitten fingers, an icy cold heart. You, able to melt my heart and warm my fingers by simply letting me place my hands on your chest. Let's recreate some winter magic time that would make Elsa jealous. Message me back with what type of beanie I was wearing so I know it's you, my ice queen. Who knows, maybe a little bit of frostbite can lead to a burning hot romance. What might be more complicated though, is the partial thickness and full thickness frostbite. This is when things go from manageable and cute with rewarming to problematic and amputation-like. While frozen, the tissues appear cold, pale, numb, wooden, 
and they actually might be frozen hard, kind of like Jean was. After thawing, the tissue can appear mottled blue or waxy, or even swollen and red. Blisters formed after thawing suggest a partial thickness injury. Fluid in blisters may be clear to reddish. Tissue remaining numb, cold, and bloodless after thawing will suggest a full thickness injury. Just as a personal aside, I can tell you that thawing and rewarming is one of the most painful experiences I have ever encountered. And I've actually broken bones attempting to qualify for American Ninja Warrior. So I can assure you, it is a level of pain and hurt you do not ever want to experience. Just though, for the sake of a general overview of frostbite, going into what it is. So cold exposure decreases the blood flow to the extremities, which are your arms and your legs, and this increases the risk of frostbite. Frostbite actually freezes and crystallizes the fluids in the body tissues and cellular spaces. This can damage the blood vessels, causing blood clotting and lack of oxygen to the affected area and deeper tissues. Now, usually your blood carries oxygen to all parts of your body so that your body tissues are kept healthy. As a protective response, when your body is exposed to extreme cold, blood vessels narrow or constrict so that blood and oxygen are diverted away from those extremities to your vital organs like your heart and your lungs and your kidney and your liver to keep them alive and functioning. That's why people lose fingers and toes even after thawing and rewarming, because those extremities are no longer perfusing, sometimes even after the frostbite is seemingly resolved. In that case, amputation can become the next course of treatment. So, what can you do if you're exposed to the elements and want to avoid hypothermia and or frostbite? Or, you have a friend who you notice is starting to become a victim of hypothermia and or frostbite. No worries, just chill out because I'm about to tell you. For frostbite, we touched a little bit about how you can do skin-to-skin -skin contact for superficial frostbite, but for a partial or full thickness injury from frostbite, you need to be careful about initiating thawing out in a wilderness setting. You should only do so when there's a minimal risk of refreezing. Thawing out is one thing, prevention of refreezing after the thaw is quite another protection from refreezing is crucial. This can ensure that you don't have further damage to whatever has been frostbitten. Never massage or use radiant heat. Consider ibuprofen for pain control and avoid constriction and further injury. You need to protect blisters or damaged tissue that might develop. In wilderness medicine, you actually consider evacuating a person who develops large blisters, blood-filled blisters, or partial to full thickness cold injury. And let me tell you something, if you go on Google and you look up frostbite injuries, they are some of the gnarliest photos you will ever see of hands, toes, faces. I think it's fascinating, but other people might think it's disgusting. Agree to disagree, but you might wanna check those out. Now for hypothermia, here's a little bit more about what you can do if you find yourself or your friends very much like Khalees and you're caught out there. Change your environment by finding shelter. Mildly hypothermic people can warm themselves if they're allowed to shiver in a dry, insulated environment that is away from wind, off the snow, off cold ground, or out of the water. Consider insulating the person affected. That's right, you need to strip down your pal or yourself and replace all wet clothing with dry while adding in wind and waterproof layers. You need to focus on insulating the head, neck, hands, and feet. And you might also need to consider doing something like a burrito wrap or a hypothermia wrap. And that's when you place a person who's affected by hypothermia in a dry sleeping bag. And then you put the dry sleeping bag on some sort of uh, sleeping pad or ground pad, and then with extra insulation under and around the person. And then you wrap all of that up in a windproof tarp. So you're assuming that between their gear and your gear, you'll be able to figure out something to do a good burrito wrap and save your friend's life or have your friend save your life while you're rewarming. I'm just insulating you for your own good, bro. I'm just here to help you live. Now add heat packs or add hot water bottles to your burrito wrap, but you have to make sure you insulate them so as to prevent burns. 
the worst thing ever is when you end up with a burn because somebody was trying to be too zealous with rewarming and you end up actually causing a burn. So this is actually relatively easy to do if you have some sort of camp stove setup. If you're caught out with some snow around, you can take some of the snow, melt it down, put it in an algin water bottle, insulate it with some socks, put it near your feet of your friend who you're also trying to prevent from becoming a popsicle, and they will more than likely thank you. Now, another thing you need to consider is that you need to add calories to the equation by encouraging your friend to eat a meal and give them warm, sweet, non-caffeinated, non-alcoholic liquids. That whole St. Bernard thing with the little thing of whiskey around its neck that saves the skiers, eh, there's a little bit of debate about whether or not that's actually something that you would encourage people to do in hypothermia situations, but that's a different topic for a different time. Now, the one time that I remember having to do some hypothermia care, we were able to heat up some Gatorade, but I'm sure if you even had some hot ham water, it'd be better than nothing. You need to get the body fueled and it will create its own heat from using up calories in order to keep yourself alive. So just be aware that if a person is awake and alert, they should be eating and they should be hydrating. Now, exercise is also appropriate for mildly hypothermic people. It gets the blood pumping like you're warming up before going on a run on a cold day. Now, by run, I mean if you're like my friend who only runs after the ice cream truck even on a cold day. All in all, it may take up to 24 hours of rest, hydration, and food intake to recover from mild to moderate hypothermia. Now, severe hypothermia is a completely different story. Treatment goes like this. This person with severe hypothermia is critically unstable, and you need to be very, very aware of everything that you do. They need to be handled gently. You got to think about what happened with Jean. She was frozen solid. She was unconscious. And so her friend Wally had to be gentle with moving her. Rough movement and even thinking about exercise is avoided. If possible, you could administer warm humidified oxygen if that's available to you. And this would be sort of when you're thinking of mountaineering like on Everest or on K2. It's also advised to assist breathing for 5 to 15 minutes prior to movement. And insulation is key to survival chances. It's not possible to thaw out or rewarm a person with severe hypothermia without hospital interventions. So this person needs to be rapidly evacuated and they need to be insulated so that you're preventing any additional heat loss. So you use the burrito wrap again. You make sure that they're insulated with heat packs at their hands, which are actually held over the chest, feet, armpits, groin, and neck. Hopefully you never have to encounter any of this. Hopefully, because you listen to this program, you've planned ahead. But how can you plan ahead? How can you prevent yourself or your family or whoever's in your hiking excursion from becoming a victim of hypothermia, becoming a victim of frostbite, becoming a victim of cold injury? Don't worry, I got you. Here are some tips and tricks on how to prevent cold injuries and succumbing to the elements. The key principle that I want you to know is that you need to know your environment and be prepared, just like the Boy Scouts. You need to tell others where you're going, have maps about the area, know the weather forecast, and pack accordingly regarding food, water, clothing, and gear. Don't be like that moron in 127 hours, who I have a weird connection to, but that guy was dumb. He didn't tell anyone where he was going. Don't make me become mad at you. Be attentive, though, to yourself and any of your companions in your traveling party. Take breaks often to check in with others and yourself. Now, regarding gear, bring wind and rain gear, things that are waterproof or water resistant, at least, to help with maintaining your layers and keeping you dry. Having things on that will keep you warm when things are wet will become the best thing of your life. Maintain adequate nutrition and hydration. It seems like a no-brainer, but sometimes when things are going wrong or it's raining or you're in a situation, we forget to drink water. Stay dry. It seems simple enough, but it's hard to keep yourself in check when you're excited or you're nervous about rapidly changing events in the environment. 
Now, I've been caught out in a canyon during a thunderstorm with lightning and torrential downpours and had a bit of a flash flood situation that me and my traveling hiking companion, we lucked out on with our little setup, but it got my blood pumping. Luckily, we all made sure to stop and avoid overexertion and to stay calm while we figured out our game plan to get out of the area safely. Now, another tip to prevent cold injury. Do not sleep with cold, wet clothing on, especially cold, wet feet. And you should never tolerate numbness in your feet. That's a sign that something is amiss with your body's ability to perfuse and regulate temperature. You might end up waking up with severely frostbitten feet. And that's not good because then you basically can't walk. Carry emergency gear and food, not just on your person during hiking or camping, but in your vehicle in general. Have a go bag, a bug out bag, whatever you want to call it. Have some sort of survival kit of some sort in your vehicle. So say you're like Jean and your vehicle becomes undrivable and you've become stuck in a vehicle for a night. If you have gear in your car and nobody else is in sight or you don't know where the nearest one way or the other is and you have to go through the night, you can survive that night and increase the likelihood that you'll be found alive because you are prepared and you have gear in your car. And you know what? Actually, doing this kind of makes me wonder something and give me some feedback. If you guys want me to do some sort of survival episodes in the future regarding wilderness medicine and preparedness, let me know. I would be more than happy to figure out something to address this topic in order to help everybody else out there with preparation. It's something that I actually inadvertently realized that I'm somewhat versed in and I have resources at my disposal that can help you. So let me know if you would be interested in me covering that in the future. So on that note, that is a brief overview, brief-ish, on frostbite and hypothermia. It is something that can become a medical emergency very quickly if interventions are not done rapidly. Let's end this episode with another round of the best show on this side of the medical entertainment, medutainment world of podcasting. You got what stuck where? I give you four clues. You tweet to me with your guess. And if you are the most correct first, you win some sweet stickers and bragging rights in weird conversations. So here we go. Clue one. This happened to a gentleman while he was in the shower. Clue two. He was lathering up a ton in the shower when he heard his phone ring and stepped out in order to take the call. When he did so, the gentleman slipped and fell and ended up having the object in question penetrate him at that time. Clue three. I'm sure he wicked away some soap and sweat when he realized what had happened because clue four, the foreign object that was in him was lodged in his rectum and he ended up needing to be put under in order to get the object removed. So there you have it. Light a fire under yourself and tweet to me with your best guess for you got what stuck where by using the at people are wild handle. So thank you again for listening. It's so much fun to do this and I have fun doing this and you could tell because I start to think of topics in the middle of my actual main topic. So I do get sidetracked sometimes. I appreciate you guys giving me feedback and telling me what you'd be interested in. Please continue to do so. And thank you so much for being here every week. I have some exciting things that are coming up that I can't announce quite yet, but I am working on behind the scenes in order to continue to bring you something that is different and fun and medically relevant. So continue to stick with it because I'm just getting started. It's going to get weird. I'm going to make it weird and it's going to be fun. So I wish you a great week ahead. I sincerely hope it is beautiful and as stress-free as possible. And remember to keep yourself warm out there on a cold, cold night. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from Corpus Delicti Podcast here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too. With a touch of lightheartedness and a dash of Southern charm. We cover compelling cases and crack them open for you. Serial killers, hitmen, historical hallmarks, we've got it all and bring you new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can find us on iTunes, 
Google Play, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter too. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday.